So we're going to look this morning at a very familiar story. Actually, one of our, our little ones read it for us already. Luke chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, go on and open up to Luke 2, the story of the shepherds in a field. Uh, if you need a Bible, I got some people that are going to walk around. I don't know if that was kids or maybe our Bible carriers left already. So use your phone. No, we'll walk around. If you need a Bible, slip up a hand. We'll get you a Bible. Um, and open up to Luke chapter 2. I'm going to read it, uh, this first part of it again. And then we'll dive in just a few minutes for just a, a little bit and just see what God might be wanting to speak to us. My invitation for you, this is a, such a familiar story, right? Charlie Brown, Christmas Carol. Uh, we, we know Christmas, we know this, this story. But my prayer is hear it again with fresh ears. And hear from the perspective of how God might you speak through this story into my story in the moment that I'm in. Because even if you've heard the story a hundred times, you're a different person now than you were then. And God is doing a new thing now than he was doing then. And so even as you, as you listen to this story, may it speak in a fresh way. But I'm actually going to start, you know what, I'm going to start in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And now in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And now the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I'm bringing you good news of great joy. That's going to be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Now this will be a sign for you. You're going to find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Now suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Okay, let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Now Mary, she treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as it had been told to them. I love this story. And I love, the, I mean, I love the story just because of the richness of it, but I love it because it's a story of a bunch of nobodies in an insignificant town, in the middle of nowhere, forgotten, unseen, not special, not spectacular, and God shows up. 
Uh, it's interesting, the story of the shepherds comes immediately in the context of this revelation that Mary and Joseph, who God had already showed up for and spoken a word to about this miraculous birth that was going to happen and how God was going to fulfill all of his promises, all of the prophecies, all of the longing and the angst and the hope of every generation of person up to that point was going to fulfill all of them in the birth of this baby. And this young couple, not even married yet, we're going to be the ones that got to carry this honor into the world, this sacred responsibility. I love it that God uses nobodies, the unexpected, in unexpected ways and unexpected places. And they end up in this town, Bethlehem, and when they get there, because everyone is having to, to register uh, their family, and everyone's going back to their family's uh, point of origin, which for Joseph, he was, a, he was a son of a son of a son of David, and, uh, and so he had to go back to Bethlehem, along with everyone else that considered them of the, themselves of the family of David. And so they show back up in Bethlehem. The place is slam-packed. It's full. There's no room. You can imagine the long, painful journey they're probably a little bit slower getting there. And when they get there, there's no room in the inn. They find their way to a little stable. And in that stable, this teenage, probably terrified mom is, gives birth to a little baby. And it makes me think uh, that when, when John began his gospel, this was the way that he worded it. In John chapter 1, verse, verse 9, that the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world didn't know him. He came to his own, and his own people didn't receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. They were born not of blood or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but the will of God. That in this context of all the busyness and the craziness and the chaos, where there's no room for the, for the Savior of the world, where there's no recognition of the fulfillment of all of God's plans and promises, over nearby, in the same region as the Bible tells us on the hills, the, the, the dark hills of Bethlehem, there were a couple shepherds. But there were some faithful shepherds actually watching out for their flocks in the dark. And in that quiet place, in their faithful waiting, in the darkness, the messenger of God showed up. And with the word, the glory of God was known. Now, one thing, as a, a reminder, you know, yesterday we, we got our Christmas tree and started putting all the ornaments and the lights on it. And, and we, we don't do the pretty fancy Christmas tree. We do the Christmas tree with all the, the, the paper and the, the craft ornaments from since our kids could barely write. And, uh, I mean, it is an absolutely monstrous, beautiful-looking Christmas tree. And so we're breaking out all of the, you know, we love, uh, we have several different um, nativity sets and you know we set those up in different places and, and you got all the you know the christmas cards and the beautiful scene of the baby and the manger and uh the, the angelic host and the lights that are shining but the reality is this was not a pretty scene there was nothing ideal about this situation 
mean, think about it on a very personal level. You have a young teenage girl away from home giving birth in a cave. Now, even in the best of circumstances, there's no woman in this room who's ever given birth that's going to say labor is just a delight. Amen? I've never given birth. I've just been there for four of them. And I do know that if I had to ask my wife what you want for vacation, going to the beach or giving birth, that's not a hard choice. And then you have these shepherds who culturally were considered the outcasts of society. It was a dirty, smelly, nasty job. They were considered the lowest of the low. Even among their own people, shepherds were a despised group or profession. They slept out in the fields with their sheep. Actually, in, in caves that are uh, cut into the side of that hill. Those of you that have been over to Israel and Palestine with us, we've gone in to those caves and stood on the side of that hill. And it's true that there's something beautiful about it. I mean, the rolling hills and the expanse of the sky. You can imagine the sheep grazing. But if you get real, it's a barren place. I mean, there's nothing there. There's no amenities. And especially in the winter. And especially 2,000 years ago. And it's Palestine. Which has been the hotbed of religious zeal for thousands of years. It's the crossroads of warring nations. Every empire rising up would cross through Palestine and destroying it in their wake. And in that time, they were occupied by Rome. There's, there's economic devastation. So on a, on a community level, it was a place of pain and angst and fear and uncertainty and chaos. So yeah, it was not pretty on a personal level for Mary and Joseph or for the shepherds, but it wasn't pretty on a community level for anyone. And then we zoom out a little bit more. And it's not a pretty story on a global level. I mean, sin, having wrecked the planet from the moment that Adam and Eve made that fateful decision to turn their back on God and one another. To demand that they would be king of their lives and, in a sense, dethrone the only one that really has the capacity to be king. And into this world came sin, and with sin came death, and with death came fear and shame and guilt and hatred and violence. And it's the world that we live in. The brokenness of humanity stretching from generation to generation, a world apart from God, turning in on itself. So personally, on a personal, individual level, it was messy and scary, and on a community level, it was broken and fearful, and on a global level. It was chaos and pain. And yet in the midst of that reality, the angelic host had the audacity to announce to a handful of scruffy shepherd punks a few miles away from a distressed teen girl and her anxious young husband, I bring you 
good news of great joy. And just let that line sink in into the reality of the situation. It's the reality of your life. Whatever you woke up this morning thinking about, whatever you struggled to fall asleep last night because you were thinking about, whatever happened this week or last month or this year, I bring you good news of great joy. So what was that good news? And what is this great joy? That God himself had shown up on this broken, messy planet in the form of a human baby to bring about the salvation of the world. That Jesus, the anointed king, who came to make all things right, to restore God's heart for all things. And so Advent reminds us that in the middle of the darkness, God shows up. In the middle of the brokenness, God shows up. In the center of your pain, God shows up. When all seems lost, and as Abby just shared, God shows up. And when all seems forgotten, God shows up. And so we find that joy is rooted in divine encounter. That's about the presence of God with us. And here's the reality of joy. It's not this elusive thing to be grasped out there. And that's what we talk about, the difference between happiness and joy. Happiness is this thing that if I could get my circumstances right, if I could accomplish or achieve or possess that thing, then maybe I'll have this fleeting sense of pleasure that life is okay for a moment. The problem is, is we never quite get there, do we? And the moment that we achieve whatever it is, it dissipates and we have to go after the next thing. And so we end up on this endless hamster wheel of the pursuit of happiness. And it's an empty pursuit. But joy isn't about what's going on out here. Joy is about what's available right here. The presence of God available for you right now. And not just right now at whatever, 1140 Sunday morning because we're at church singing the songs and praying the prayers and opening the Bibles. But tomorrow morning on your way into work. At 6 a.m., thinking about whatever it is that your boss is going to say or your employer, employees are dealing with. On Thursday, at 5 p.m., sitting at the dinner table with your kids. On Friday night with your friends. The presence of God is available for you. And that changes everything. That's the reality of joy. Joy is the relational connection with a God who delights in his people and keeps showing up, regardless of what you've done. And it's like a loving father that doesn't turn away from their child when they're in their own mess, but actually their heart is even more open to that child when they're in their mess. That, that, whose heart breaks as their child's heart is broken. And doesn't tell them, when you get it fixed, then come see me. But let me in so that I can help fix it. It's the presence of God for you in Jesus. That's the announcement of joy that was made for all people. 
And that divine encounter, we see that throughout the stories that we've been telling. I mean, it's the story of the wise men. It says that after they heard from the king in Matthew 1, they went their way. The star that had been leading them uh, went before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was in that place of encounter with Jesus. In verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Joy is rooted in divine encounter. It's the story that we read last week of Zechariah, how God meets him in the silence. And there's a little side story that's included in the story of Zechariah that we didn't get into. And it's a story of, of his wife, Elizabeth, going to, to visit her family member, Mary, who also was pregnant. We know that Mary was pregnant with Jesus, the Savior of the world. Elizabeth, pregnant with John the Baptist, the forerunner, the prophet that was going to come to announce the coming of the king. And it says in Luke 1.41 that when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? And listen to this. For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, my baby leaped in my womb for joy. Joy is rooted in divine encounter. And I love that Jesus, even when he was still in the womb, was impacting in a tangible way the lives of the people that encountered him. How much more now? Risen and exalted over all things. We talked a few months ago I was sharing with you like this uh, science of what's called, they're calling neurotheology, those of you that were here for that. And now what they're recognizing now is they're studying the ways that our brains work and then finding that, sure enough, surprise, surprise, that the things that God has been telling us for thousands of years are actually true. And one of those things is that your brain is hardwired for joy. And what they define joy as is that feeling when, when uh, somebody's face lights up when they see you. That sparkle in somebody's eye. You know, like, you know that feeling, right? Like when you walk in the room and somebody's excited, when their face lights up. And the reality is, is that they, it says that they say that eight times a second, your brain, even right now as you're sitting there, eight times a second, your brain is scanning the environment around us honing in on people's faces to determine whether you are safe and loved or in danger and at risk. And based on what you're perceiving on the faces of the people around you, your heart is either open or your heart is closed and defensive. Right now, whether you want to or not, you cannot stop this from happening. It is happening. You're watching people's faces and determining, am I safe? Am I wanted? Am I loved? And if I am, if I see that sparkle in your eyes that you see me and you know me and you love me, that sense, and let yourself feel it. You know what that feels like. That's called joy. Now joy, and then we also know the opposite, right? You know what it is to walk in and somebody's face be closed off or angry. Now here's the amazing thing. When God taught his priests, his representatives, to bless the people in Numbers chapter 6, do you know what the blessing was that they prayed over the people multiple times a day? May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face 
to shine upon you and give you peace. In other words, when you walk in the room, God's face lights up. And that reality, that the God of this universe, who so delights in his children and would do anything for them, was willing to be born as a baby in a cave to a teenage woman in humble circumstances, in the most vulnerable way, that his face would be available to all of us. And is that reality of God, the God who delights in you and gave everything for you that you could be called his children? John, 1 John 3, 1. How great is the love the Father has lavished poured out on us that we could be called children of God and that is what we are and the reason the world doesn't know us is because it doesn't know him and it's that the presence the divine encounter of God with us in the person of Jesus where his joy is found that's the good news of great joy and nothing can change that now, the interesting thing about this story is it says that the shepherds go back to their field praising and glorifying God. Ironically, for the shepherds, nothing changes. They go back to their smelly sheep and their smelly jobs, and they're still despised by their peers. And yet, in that encounter with Jesus, everything changed. And the same is for us. It's not just begging God, change my circumstances. And yes, God wants to help us change our circumstances, but it's not the point. It's the reality of his presence and the availability of joy, no matter what our circumstances are. And nothing, nothing can take that away. Nothing can change that. Because his face is turned towards you. His eyes light up when you walk in the room. And what we find is that in the Bible, joy is not the opposite of sorrow. Henry Nouwen has a quote. He says that joy and sorrow are never separated. When our hearts rejoice at a spectacular view, we may miss our friends who cannot see it. And we are, when we are overwhelmed with grief, we may discover what true friendship is all about. Joy is hidden in sorrow and sorrow in joy. If we try to avoid sorrow at all costs, we may never taste joy. And if we are suspicious of ecstasy, agony can never reach us either. Joy and sorrow are the parents of our spiritual growth. In Hebrews, he even says of Jesus, that Jesus endured, that, that uh, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Towards the end of his life, <clears throat> his time here with us, as Jesus gathered with his disciples in the upper room, one of the final things that Jesus said to them, this is John 16, 20, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and you'll lament. Your hearts are going to be broken, he's saying, and the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. 
how is God right now wanting to show up in your pain, in your grief, in your struggle, in the places of confusion or doubt or fear? What are the ways that God has turned his face towards you and invites you? Hey, lean into me. Let me sit with you there. And then let's stand up and take a step forward together. The promise of joy, of real joy, lasting joy, is about presence, about encountering the divine, that God draws near to the brokenhearted. Even as Jesus said in Matthew 4 in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So then the question becomes, if that's what Jesus does, and Jesus has shown up for us, how now is he inviting us to begin to show up for others? Who are we drawing near? And we even see this in the shepherd's story. We go back to the story. What happens? They encounter Jesus, right, just as the angel had told them. They're obedient to that word, which, if I'm honest, I don't really feel like is like that big of an act of obedience. Because if the angelic hosts showed up and they're like, hey, you should do this, I would probably be like, okay, I should probably do this. To me, the, the more significant act of obedience wasn't when they left the hill to go find Jesus. It was when they went back from encountering Jesus back into their old lives, but with this new news. And it says they glorified, praised God, having seen and heard. They told everyone what they had encountered. And so in the same way, the power of Abby's story isn't just this, the, the, the miracle that God showed up for her in that way. The power of her story is in her retelling her story that her joy might become our joy. That her story might inform our story. That the ways that God has shown up may in, in tune our minds in, uh, the way God showed up for her may tune our minds shows up for us. And we find that joy is actually sustained by praise that is rooted in presence but is sustained by praise that we tell the story of what we've encountered with God and in a sense it reinforces and echoes the joy that we're living in by that encounter <clears throat> yesterday I had the privilege um, with the residents all of, so the, when Grace has residents it's um residents at every one of the grace churches there's 10 different grace churches around the country um and uh all of them came down to atlanta for a little um mission trip this past thursday and friday and saturday down in clarkston now i don't know if you know this but clarkston is uh, considered one of the, the most diverse square miles uh in, in the country and uh, and so we have grace has had a long like for about 20 years now a long-standing presence in ministry in clarkston uh, loving on engaging um, and, and working with refugees that come from, from all over the world. And so they went down and uh, were a part of that for a few days. And uh, it just asked me to come down and be a part of it for a couple hours yesterday. And so I was down there and, and shared a little bit about Grace's history and just did a little training with, uh, with the residents. But then after me, there was a, a family that was there uh, that is from Afghanistan. And, um, I, you know, 
a few months ago, or whenever that was, about a year ago now, uh, when all of that went on in Afghanistan, our church has responded, and many of you actually gave to help rescue people out of Afghanistan uh, that were trying to flee the country. Um, and there's ways that grace people were secretly going in there and helping with that. Now, one of the ways that we found, one of the easiest paths out, was actually uh, that we could sponsor families with religious visas. Uh, and so Christian families who were most at risk could actually get a, a religious visa and be brought out of Afghanistan, and then they're here sponsored for two years as part of the church. Well, there's this Afghani, Afghani family that is now, through Grace Snellville, sponsored to be rescued. And so they're there, and uh, they are sharing their story and the things that they've experienced. And, and they asked them to share their favorite verse, and uh, they just kind of went one by one. And, uh, and they pretty decent English, but, uh, you know, kind of still broken English and shared their verse and then, uh, and then shared, you know, what is it that we can be praying for you about? And what was amazing is that all of their prayer requests had nothing to do with themselves. It was pray for our brothers that are still over there living in uh, the, the capital city. And, uh, that, and actually the way they worded it was this. They, they live right next to where the Taliban headquarters is. And, uh, and they're Christians. And they said that they know it is a risk every time they walk out of their door. Uh, that it's their choice to leave, but they don't know if they're going to actually ever make it home. Like, that's the reality they're living in. So pray for our brothers. Pray for their security. And pray that we could share the gospel. And then they said this, and pray that we could tell people, our people here in Clarkston about Jesus while we're here. That their whole mindset, despite all the trauma and the war and the awful and the, the fear and the things that they had left behind, wasn't about their circumstance. Their concern, or what they knew or were rooted in, was a God who had shown up for them, continues to be present with them, and, they want, and their deepest desire is to make that God known. And I kept thinking, if you just put me on the spot and asked me what to be praying for, what would I have said? And I hate to admit this, I'm a pastor, I'm supposed to be better than this, but I'm not. I, it would have all been 80% about me. Things that I'm struggling with, things that I'm nervous about, overwhelmed by, stressed out about. And I've looked at this family and I'm like, oh my gosh. Like, they have the perspective. And with that perspective, what do they have? Joy. And I keep thinking about myself, worried about myself, focused on my circumstances, and I wonder what I'm missing. Joy. And it's available and present right there with us all the time. The God who shows up. The God whose face lights up when I walk in the room. Who just wants me as his son to sit with him for a minute. And to walk with him one step at a time. And that invitation is just as true for you. Wherever you are. Whatever you're facing. And so right now, we're going we're gonna to continue in worship. And, and Jesus, having uh, shared those words, is that my desire is that my joy would be in you and that your joy would be full, complete. Then it says that he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this bread is my body given for you. The very presence of God available for you. Take, eat. And every time you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And so in communion, as we, as we take from that broken loaf, we remember the presence of God available to us in Jesus. And in that sacrament, it's an act of surrender. It's actually an act of faith. 
intended by the, to be taken by those who have placed their faith in Christ, surrendered to him as Lord, and as that reminder, the presence of God available to us in the person of Jesus. And then Jesus took the cup, that Passover cup of redemption, and he said, this cup, this cup you've been lifting up for thousands of years, telling an old story, the whole time it was actually about me. This cup is my blood, Jesus said. Shed for the forgiveness of your sins, the blood of a new covenant. Take and drink, and every time you do this, do this in remembrance of me. So we take that bread as a reminder of the presence of God with us. And we take that cup as a reminder of the forgiveness of God for us in Jesus. And so I invite you into communion. But before we take communion, as we enter into worship with our songs and our praise, I invite you just to pause for just a second. Just quiet your mind, still your heart, in the words of this familiar Christmas story, what is God wanting you to know? Well, right now, as the God of this universe looks at you as his son, his daughter, what does he want to speak into your heart? How does he want to show up for you, even right now? So Lord, will you open our hearts to your word, your spirit, and by your Holy Spirit, we invite you to speak. God, what do you want us to know? Lord Jesus, when you look at us, who are we to you? Lord, how are you inviting us to receive what you have for us this morning? God, is there anything we need to confess? Is there anything that's separating us from you because of our own choices or decisions? Any place of sin or shame or guilt? May we just take that to the cross. And by your blood, let it die there with you. And God, what are you wanting to pour back into us for us to receive? By your Holy Spirit, will you fill us with your presence? Meet us here. In your name we pray. Amen.